So the first Sunday, our word of worship was taken from the song of Zechariah that we find in Luke chapter 1. And we find there this word, hallelujah. Now, it's a partial hallelujah that Zechariah proclaims, praise the Lord. And hallelujah means literally praise God. It means praise Yahweh. And we saw that all hallelujahs in our lives are really broken hallelujahs. Every single hallelujah in our life, every single situation. And that's really the way life goes, isn't it? The way life goes is that things are so good. There's so many blessings of family and church and blessings that we have in this country. But then there's also the brokenness that comes along with that. And so we saw that the hallelujahs that we have in our lives, these broken hallelujahs, that one day Jesus will have the final hallelujah. These broken hallelujahs are not the final hallelujah. These broken hallelujahs are temporary. And so we saw that in the book of Revelation that there will be a final threefold hallelujah. It's the first time in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. The full hallelujah in Revelation, in the end of the Bible. And so we saw this one word of worship, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise Yahweh. Are you living a hallelujah? And then last week we saw the one word of worship was through Mary's Magnificat, through Mary's song. And we saw that one word is magnify. And it's the only time in the scriptures, in the New Testament scriptures, where magnify is used except once in Romans. And we saw that this word magnify means obviously to make things seem larger, appear larger. And we saw that we are all magnifying something at all times. We are magnifying machines. All of us are. Right now, you are magnifying something. I am magnifying something. And we can either be microscopes, which magnify things, or we can be telescopes, which magnify things, objects. So microscopes are great when it comes to science, but they're poor when it comes to our spiritual lives. So we can be a microscope spiritually, and we can be studying and examining all of these small things that are way smaller than Jesus a million times, infinitely smaller than Jesus. So we can be studying those, and we can be microscopes, or we can be telescopes, where we're looking at something that seems far off, that is way bigger than it appears to be fixated on Jesus. So we saw that one word of worship when we're spiritual telescopes, we magnify the greatness of God. We study him. We immerse ourselves in nothing but Jesus. And we spend the rest of our lives figuring out what nothing but Jesus means in our lives. That's what a telescope does spiritually. The gravitational pull is away from magnifying God and being distracted by many, many things. Many of you are distracted right now. Being distracted by life, being distracted by kids, being distracted by things like travel ball and lessons and school and things that are temporal instead of fixating and magnifying Jesus. Things that are infinitely smaller than God. And so we've seen 
the word of worship, hallelujah, the word of worship, magnify. And this morning we come to our third word of worship. What will that word of worship be? It's a word that describes something that we get to do to God. It's a word that describes something that mere creatures like you and I get to do. It's a word of worship that isn't found only twice in the New Testament, like magnify, or only once in the New Testament, like hallelujah. It's found 350 times all through the scriptures. It's embedded in the entire Bible. It's a word that is one of the most important words of worship, if not the most important word of worship. It's the most important word or one of the most important words in our lives. Hopefully you're listening by now. It's a word that the greatest composer of the Baroque period, and perhaps of all time, wrote at the bottom of each one of his more than 1,100 compositions. This would be his word of worship. It's a word that is up there with grace and faith. It's the one word that summarizes the mysterious book of Ezekiel. It's the word the reformers used to describe man's chief end in this life. It's the word of worship sung or chanted or said by the angels. That word is glory. Gloria. Bach inscribed each one of his compositions, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I mean, we sing this word. We sang about endless glory earlier. We sang gloria. It's the Latin for glory. Gloria and excelsis Deo. We want to glorify God in our lives. In everything we do, we want to give God glory. But what does the word glory even mean? Do we even have a solid definition of what glory means? Or do we just throw the word around? Notice verse 9. Let's see. Glory shown around them. Notice that. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. Verse 16. The shepherds beheld Jesus, seeing his glory. And in verse 20, what did they do? The shepherds, what? They glorified God as a result. They reflected his glory to others. Notice the rhythm of the way that word is used throughout that incredible passage. What does glory mean, though? Still throwing it around. Glorify God. What does it even mean? Does it mean to sing? Does it mean to praise him? Does it mean to do these things? Well, it literally means to shine. It literally means a weighty shine. It means, in verse 9, that it's a thing. Glory is a thing that we see. I'm not going to say it's an object because it's supernatural, but in some ways it is an object. Glory is something that we behold. It's a weighty shining. It means a shining that results from God showing something 
about himself to us. You get that? God's showing something to us about himself. I'm thinking about what I'm just saying right now. The God of the universe will show something to us about himself. Moses was the central figure of the Old Testament. The central event in the Old Testament was the deliverance out of Egypt from bondage. It was the crossing of the Red Sea. If you are Jewish and you don't believe in the New Testament, if you are a Jew who doesn't ascribe to the New Testament, that's the central event. Moses is a central character. Is being delivered from Egypt. Moses said to God, show me your glory. And in Exodus 33, Moses said this, please show me your glory. And he said, God, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. I will hide you, Moses, behind the rocks, and then I'll pass by. You can look at the back of me. You can look at the shadow and get a glimpse of my glory. As a result, Scripture tells us that Moses' face shone every time he met with God, so much so that he put a veil over his face to protect the people both to protect them from the brightness, from the glory, but also to protect them from judging because the glory faded over time. And then Moses would meet with God again and the glory would return. The temple of the Lord was filled with what is called Shekinah glory. It's shown. Think about what we believe. I mean, we believe that Solomon's temple had the glory of God manifested in it so much so that it could be seen for miles away. That's what you believe, Christians. That's what we believe. The shining glory of God was seen in the pillar of cloud that followed the Israelites by day and fire by night. This is the glory of God manifested, seeing something visible. The glory of God shone around them. We love throwing those terms around, but think deeply about what we're saying. When Jesus was transfigured, he was glorified. His face shone. What was invisible became visible. The glory that was within him emanated through his face. The first martyr, Stephen, saw God's glory. He looked up in the heavens He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He beheld his glory, and all of a sudden, nothing on earth mattered. It didn't matter that they were ready to stone him. It didn't matter because he was beholding the glory of God. What about you? One day we will see the glory of God when Jesus returns. Revelation speaks of Jesus being the king of glory. 
Jesus, the king of glory of the Psalms, the Lord mighty in battle. Glory means to shine. It means God has revealed something about himself. But it also means something else. Because while God reveals his glory to us, we don't do that. God does that. He reveals his glory to us. We're designed to give God glory, to glorify God. Glory is something we give back to God in response for something he gives to us. Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God gives us something. He pours out something on us, and then we give back to him glory. What is it that he pours out on us? It says it right there. God pours down peace on us, and we reflect glory back up to him. He pours out peace. That peace has nothing to do with world peace, with military peace, with peace between countries, with peace within countries. That peace is eternal peace through Jesus. That peace means we were at war with God. We're at war with him. Some of you are at war with him right now. But Jesus dies on the cross, and he bought peace for us with God. That's why we say Jesus is our peace. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But this peace isn't like the peace that happens between North Korea and the United States when we stopped being at war. Or between even two countries that come to peace terms and maybe they don't really like each other from there on out. So you can't compare it to that kind of peace. That's not the peace that Jesus brings. The kind of peace he brings is he reconciles us to God. He makes it right between us and God. He brings peace with God. And he also makes us friends of God. Not just friends of God, but sons and daughters, like we read earlier from Galatians 4, sons and daughters of the Most High. That Paul says that he removes the wall between us. That's the kind of peace that he brings. That he unifies us together with Christ. That's called union with Christ. That's the peace that we're given. Union with Christ because of the Prince of Peace. We're more than friends, like I said. We are forgiven 70 times 70. We are given second chances and 10th chances and 200th chances. That's the kind of peace that we're given. That peace. We were separated from God. At war with God. Not just separated, but at war with God. Separated from him. And now nothing can separate us from the love of God that is given to us through the peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the peace that is poured down on us through the song of Christmas. God pours out his peace on us through Jesus. That is what the peace on earth, goodwill on whom his favor rests, means. So how is it possible for us to give God glory? 
He pours out peace on us, and we in turn get to give him glory. How is that even possible? I thought glory was a shining, a a revealing of God. How do we have anything to do with that whatsoever? I mean, it doesn't really make sense that we can give God anything, does it? I mean, let alone giving God glory. Where does that come from? Glory means to shine, but listen, it also means to reflect. Two sides to the same coin. Shining and reflecting. Shining and reflecting. In verse 9, God's glory is revealed. Verse 14, his glory is declared. Verse 17, the shepherds behold his glory. And in verse 20, his glory is reflected by the shepherds to others. Like Tyler said earlier, unclean dudes. Yet they're reflecting his glory. The shepherds encountered God's glory, saw God's glory in Jesus, reflected that glory to others. The shepherds were like Moses in some ways in the Old Testament. Moses would meet with God. He met with God when he received the Ten Commandments. He would meet with God. He would come back to the people and his appearance would change. He would be glowing. His face would be shining because he had beheld the glory of God. His face shone so much that he would have to wear a veil in front of his face to protect the people from the light of the glory. Moses beheld God's glory and reflected that glory to the people. The shepherds beheld the glory of God and reflected that glory to others. Okay, practical now. How do we do that? How do we reflect God's glory, the brightness of God, the glory of God, the otherness of God, the character of God? The character traits of God, the fruit of the Spirit that we're given, love, joy, peace. How do we reflect that to others in our lives? Big question. Has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice that last phrase. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus said, I will give you a comforter. I will give you another. I will give you my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is given to us, listen, And the Holy Spirit has one job description, to whisper to us over and over and over again, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. To point us continually to Jesus, to his life, to testify of Jesus again and again. That is why we are to preach nothing but Jesus, nothing but the gospel only. And the gospel is nothing but Jesus. Imagine it like this. The Holy Spirit is behind us. The Holy Spirit is behind us and Jesus is in front of us. And the Holy Spirit is whispering to us again and again, it is finished, it is finished. And the Holy Spirit is throwing rays 
of glory, of light, hurling those rays over our shoulder onto Jesus, glorifying him again and again and again. And that glory reflects back to us. That's what it looks like. In other words, the Holy Spirit whispers to you when you're being tempted. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's hurling light on Jesus. And you're coming to church and you're hearing about him. You're coming to the table and you're feeding on him. You're being around God's people where two or more are gathered. There I am in the midst, Jesus said. And he's saying to you, look, he was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. The Holy Spirit hurls, throws light Glory raised onto Jesus again and again and says, share the gospel, share Jesus with others, this brilliant glory standing in front of you. The Holy Spirit doesn't throw glory and raise on moralism or God and country politics or pet issues and preferences. Over and over, the Holy Spirit stands behind us, continually throwing light on Jesus, testifying of him. We don't do that. The Holy Spirit does. We reflect it. He says, be the physical representation of Jesus in the world. Be the hands and the feet of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus. Behold his glory. And then reflect his glory to others. It's really simple. We make it so complicated. We don't do anything to add to God's glory. We simply reflect it. Moses beheld God, reflected his glory so much that he had to protect the people. But that glory, Scripture tells us, would fade when Moses would leave the presence of God. Moses had to veil his face. We have unveiled faces. The glory of God faded from Moses when he left the presence of God. The glory in us doesn't fade, but increases from glory to glory to glory. You hear that? And we're forever changed. So we sing. The glory that we're given, it increases. We don't come down from the mountain like Moses did. The mountain lives inside of us. And we become more and more and more. That glory reflects in us more and more and more. It doesn't leave us like it did Moses. It increases in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. We have a relationship with God that even Moses didn't possess. Moses wasn't able to go to the promised land. We're in the promised land right now. We're basking in his glory. We are in the new covenant that brings the righteousness of Jesus. Moses was in the old covenant that brought the curse and the death of the law. 2 Corinthians 3.18, again, notice that word, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. That word, being transformed, we're being transformed into the same image from one glory to another glory to another glory. And what does that word mean? It means the sense of the word is present and passive. It means 
that we passively, we don't transform ourselves. God does that work. The Holy Spirit does that work. I am so happy it's not dependent on me. We just behold his glory. And the transforming is also present. It's happening right now. Amidst the million distractions, it's happening right now in me and it's happening in you. You are being transformed right now through worship, increasing in glory more and more and more, beholding his face. If you're beholding anything else, no glory, zero glory in that. Beholding his glory, transforming us continually. The word from transform, for transformation is metamorphosis. It means to change from the inside out, to change the spiritual core, to be given a new nature. The word transformation or metamorphosis, it's the same word to describe the process a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. This nasty, wormy, creepy, crawling insect. I mean, just think about that. Think about God. His creative majesty, this worm, this creepy-looking, squishy worm somehow becomes a beautiful butterfly through this same idea of transformation, of metamorphosis. Glory to God in the highest. That's what we do. The angel said, go see the child, go see Jesus, go see glory, and then reflect that glory to others, be changed by that glory. Beholding his glory means fixing our eyes on Jesus, gazing at him. What about you? Are you reflecting the glory of God? You don't have to muster up the glory of God. You don't have to add glory to God. You don't have to do a bunch of things in life that add glory. The glory is already there. We just behold the glory and reflect his glory, not our glory. That's all we do. These shepherds, these lowly, smelly, stinky, unclean, ceremonially unclean outcasts were more glorified, were reflecting more glory than the spiritual leaders of the day of Jesus, the Pharisees. Think about that. Are you reflecting his glory? Practically, that looks like prizing worship, what we're doing here right now. It means being here among God's people, above all else. It means the distractions of life are dim compared to what we have here when we gather together and behold his glory. When we're standing and we're saying, I raise my hands and surrender. I went to the Army-Navy game last week. Amazing. I'll tell you about it another time. Absolutely amazing. I never, ever, ever want to hear that men don't have emotion. Because we do. And it is a good illustration. The way we are at the football games. The way we are cheering on our kids. And then we come to church and many times we're the frozen chosen. And it's a valid... It's a valid complaint. It is. 
Read the scriptures. Shout to the Lord. Shout to the Lord. Give him praise. Loud symbols. Raise your voices. Hallelujah literally means you people praise God. The assembly needs to praise God with a loud shout. Beholding his glory. Where two or more gathered, I'm in the midst. Think about your last year. We're coming to the end of the year. Think about your last year. If you could change one thing about this past year, what would it be? Maybe a word you said or didn't say. Maybe something you did, something you thought. Maybe a relationship. But no one looks back on their past year and says, you know what, I wish I hadn't spent so much time worshiping God in the church. No one looks back and says, I wish I hadn't spent so much time developing friendships and relationships among God's people in my small group. I wish I hadn't spent so much time serving and sharing God's love through Jesus, being his hands and his feet. No one would say, I wish I hadn't prayed so much or worshiped so much. No one would say it, yet year in and year out, that's how we live. Why? Because we aren't gazing at Jesus. Our eyes are so quickly pulled off of Jesus and onto ourselves. My favorite hymn was written by a woman named Helen Lemmel. She was the daughter of a Methodist minister. She was involved in the Billy Sunday Crusades in the 20th century, and she wrote 500 hymns, but only one truly survived and found its way into practically every hymnal. She based the lyrics on a leaflet that was written by another woman 10 years before her. Helen discovered it. The writer of the leaflet was writing about the difficulty of remaining with our gaze on Jesus. She was writing about the many, many distractions we have in this world. And this is in the 20s. Just imagine what she would say today about the distractions we face. She's lamenting the distractions. The leaflet writer gave this prescription for finding meaning in life. Here comes your three steps to getting better. Turn your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look and look and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. Helen's heart were captured by these words, and she wrote this verse as a result. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. But it's not the verse that's famous. It's the chorus. Helen said that when she wrote the chorus, she said, I stood still and singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus with no one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme or note to note to make melody. I believe her when it comes to composing these great songs. These are the lyrics she wrote. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, the distractions, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Wow. When you gaze on the glory of Jesus, that glory is reflected in your life. Let me tell you something. When you're not gazing at the glory of Jesus, because we see this with Christians rampantly, especially on social media, 
when you're not gazing at that glory, you become very, very, very ugly, nasty. There's nothing there. When I'm not gazing on Jesus, I am a nasty person. I am the chief of sinners. Eyes on man, discouraged. Eyes on Jesus, encouraged. Eyes on man, captivity. Eyes on Jesus, freedom. Eyes on man, distractions and busyness and people-pleasing. Eyes on Jesus, laser-beamed focus on the mission of Jesus. Eyes on man, no reflection of God's glory. Eyes on Jesus, more and more glory. Glory to glory to glory. Eyes on man, no change in our lives. Eyes on Jesus, we are changed again from glory to glory to glory, ever increasing in glory. Forever changed, we will never be the same. You know, so many times when we study the background of the great hymns of the church, I mean, it's just amazing. We find that the hymn was written through incredible, horrible pain. Almost every time someone dies, some horrible thing happens to the hymn writer. And so it was kind of refreshing reading this story about her because she was rocking and rolling in the 20th century. She wrote a book for children that was a bestseller. She wrote 500 hymns. She was with Billy Sunday. She was doing meetings, camp meetings, revivals, concerts. She had a great life until tragedy hit because she went blind. How ironic. The woman who writes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, loses her eyes, loses her sight. Her husband, unable to cope with her blindness, left her. Her life could have been over. She could have fixed her eyes on bitterness. She could have fixed her eyes on conflict. She could have fixed her eyes on her situation. But she continually fixed her spiritual eyes now on Jesus, away from herself. How bitter is it that the same woman who sang the praises of God by penning the beautiful phrase, turn your eyes upon Jesus, would be afflicted with blindness. But she didn't grow bitter. Totally blind, she would now pick out the notes on a small keyboard and find friends to come to her home to record them before she forgot them. Listen to this. This really convicted me. One asked, how are you? She's blind. Friends asking, how are you? Her frequent reply was, I'm fine in the things that count. She died at 97 years of age. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. There's going to come a time during this song where we're going to ask you to sing with us. I want you to sing it from your heart. Or just listen to the words.
Christian, if you're trusting in him for salvation, are you truly gazing at Jesus's beautiful, wonderful face? Are you you reflecting that glory? Are you turning your eyes on Jesus? Or are you gazing at a million other smaller things that fail to deliver what they promise? You may be a Christian and you've forgotten Jesus. I do it all the time. I'm guilty. No wonder the people in the world aren't usually drawn to the church anymore. Not drawn to us because we're not gazing at Jesus, reflecting his glory. We look just like them. There's no shine. There's no glow. With the birth of Jesus, John said that his glory His glory dwelled among us, literally tabernacled among us. Literally, Jesus pitches his tent with us. And we behold and reflect that nothing but Jesus' glory. Do you need a gospel awakening this Christmas? You may have known Jesus. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. You may have known him for decades. But we forget. We turn our gaze to so many other things. Maybe you're not truly saved. Maybe you prayed a prayer years ago. It doesn't really mean much. Maybe you've been raised in a Christian family. Maybe you're even a leader in a church and you still struggle to really get it. Jesus almost annoys you. Rather just focus on a far off vague God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you don't know Jesus... I want to invite you this morning to come to know him. I want to invite you this morning to pray, to receive him into your life. Wouldn't it be amazing for that to happen for you during this incredible time of the year? To give your life to him. To say a simple prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. To say that simple prayer. That belief that you have in your heart, even if it's weak, even if it's small, that's a gift that God gave you. He gave you that gift of faith, as small as it may be. Jesus said if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, when you bury a mustard seed in the dirt, it disappears. But then this incredible tree, this plant grows. God brought you here for a reason this morning. You aren't here by a chance or mistake. I'm calling on you to give your brokenness, your broken hallelujahs over to God, to magnify him, to gaze into the face of Jesus, to behold his glory, to turn your eyes upon Jesus.